Hello out there, Radio Land. <laughs> Welcome to the Blackocracy. <laughs> Welcome we back, actually. Back. It's been a while. We have returned the dynamic duo. It's here really to talk much- about life. And, yes, and we're things. here to talk about some um, some crucial updates. Some uh, some some. I don't want to call them hot button topics because, as we always tell you all, we um, do not design or fashion ourselves to be, you know, the current topics in blackness um, <laughs> pod. And for that reason, there are many things that we'll always skip over. Um, but yeah, let's let's start with uh, welcome to the Blackocracy. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back, rocking with us. Um, my dear uncle, with whom um, I was raised as siblings, basically. So he's more <laughs> like my brother, to be honest. And I do have a brother. Don't trip. I was gonna say Maybe she one. has she has an actual brother though. Yeah, I have two brothers in fact. Maybe one of these days, one of them probably the older one because I, I don't really see John being with it. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe someday soon we can have the other one on here. I don't know. Yeah. What are we talking about? Let's do it. Um, no, but we're back. Um, it's been a minute, so we definitely want to check in. We have people hitting us up saying when's another episode, and so here is another episode. And a lot has happened though since our last one. So many things. What what's happened with you? I got COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, I got COVID. No, yeah. <laughs> I did get vaccinated. Um, and trying to stay away from all the COVID two point and three point mm-hmm. that have reportedly hit the streets. I'm trying to stay away from that stuff. Um, but outside of that, um, trying to be thankful for what I have. Um, I also did a ancestry test to figure out where, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. So that was eventful. That was a good time. You missed, you <laughs> missed a very important crucial update. Oh, what's that? Oh, yes. I also got engaged. Hey. I'm going to put in some hand claps for that. Yes, yes. We are put in a little applause for you. Wow. You know what? Like, it's been crazy that it's been that long since the last pod. Because I was like, that's not necessarily brand new. But, <laughs> but yes, it freaking yeah. is. Yeah. I'm too but excited, y'all, because his partner is awesome. And I love her. And they've been together forever. And we're like family already anyway. So there you go. Just confirmation with a piece of jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, it, it's more reflective on on us having not recorded since then. Um, right. But yes, really excited for that. That's going to be great. Um, still planning out all of the details for that. But, you know, I don't I don't know how many of you out there will know. But when that happens, but the wedding will be great. <laughs> I don't want too many uninvited guests. Yeah, but you definitely. Can I be in the women team? Can you be in the what? I don't know. Like, you know, the bride has a team and the, oh. the, the groom has a team. Like, if I don't be on her team, I should be on your team. Okay. 
yeah, we're drafting teams. You know, like I didn't, I don't, I think they're like grooms people. Well, whatever they are, I'm coming to the strip club right with y'all. I'm doing all of it. I, you know, I don't do those things. I. You don't do those things. Well, I do. Those I things. read books. <laughs> I don't read books. I'm a heathen. Um, <laughs> audio books work for me. Yeah, so let me put in a quick pub for that. Oh my goodness! And ooh, one no. Well, one day I should mention like friends of mine. They also do um, sell uh, and distribute um, audio books as well. I'll get into that another time. We should we should totally do an episode with like you know our dope entrepreneur friends. Yeah, do dope things because there's a we, lot of those. We can do that. <laughs> I think we can do that. But what have you been up to? What's going on with you? Um, what have I been up to? Wrapping up grad school. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Hand Chris. Claps for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody. Thank you, all of them. Thank you. You know, to all my grandparents. Sorry, that's my coffee mug. Um, thank you to everyone in my family, present company included, who's actually been a bomb during this entire journey. So I actually finish in December when I actually go through a ceremony. I do not know, but dear uncle, you will be the first to know. Hey, I'm um, in there. She's smart, yeah. y'all. You'll be the first to know. Um, and then, of course, everyone, I'm going to continue on to seek, um, first and foremost, um, to be a licensed um, social worker. So I'm going to go for the LMSW or LSW. I'm going to go for that first and foremost, like without skipping a beat. Um, so just get that out the way and, you know, keep working, building clinical hours, clinical experience. Because um, right now I haven't really been doing clinical work up front. I've been more on the supervision, management and like program coordination, that type of end. Um, so I haven't been doing like direct clinical work in that way in some time. Um, so, you know, I need more practice and whatever. So I'll get that in and, um, then go ahead for my clinical license and keep it moving. Um, I've been involved in some really awesome stuff in terms of building um, on on the behalf and perspective of um, the doula organization that I, the birth work organization that I trained through and am affiliated with, Ancient Song Doula Services, which was um, founded in Brooklyn, but we have a New Jersey branch now as well. And it's going to be like keeping branching out, um, doing really great work. Um, you know, of course, everything has its challenges and what have you but the work goes forward. So we've been trying to get ourselves together to like be able to um, take Medicare and, and uh, like New Jersey care and whatever in New Jersey. So we can get that moving, being community doulas in that way for our own perspective. Um, we've been in, which you'll probably all see, I don't know when, but I was actually, we were actually just um, recently in a CVS uh, commercial. <laughs> um, working on, you know, talking about our birth work and um, going over comfort measures and things like that. Um, for those who don't know, you should freaking know. But 
um, maternal mortality in addition to infant mortality, but maternal mortality of Black women across the country is epidemic levels, but in the states of New York and New Jersey are and had been particularly epidemic levels. I'm talking about like a Black woman being 13, 14 and up times more likely to die during and um, not too long after childbirth as opposed to white women. So um, epidemic proportions of issues here. Um, I won't go into the weeds. That's the topic for another day. But um, some governments and coalitions have stepped up or at least tried to in creating some measures there. New Jersey is one. That's one of the main campaigns of our um, governors, you know, our first lady of the state and what have you. So a lot of, um, of course, there's going to be a lot of criticism, no matter what you do with regard to this. But um, just to say that there's amazing work being done, um, you know, slowly but surely. And we's getting to it. Um, So I've been involved in some of that, you know, still being a social worker, just all over the place. Oh, um, and I'm actually teaching yoga classes now. Like I was not doing that. I was totally afraid to do it. Um, I have finally like gotten up my chutzpah to go ahead and push through. So, you know, I'm just working through my personal insecurities and kinks about that. Um, (laughs) And I don't mean kink in that other way. Again, a topic for another time. I mean, kinks as in, you know, like my own personal hangups um and just pushing through and you know manifesting that in my life so just just looking forward to being an all-around um advocate of wellness especially for um black and brown and and also indigenous um women um and non-men and that's very important to note as well because everybody who chooses to birth it's not necessarily does not necessarily identify as a woman. Um, so you know, inclusive language, inclusive language, um, human rights, human rights, ethics, ethics. So yeah, I've, I've been up, I've been up to a lot of those things. Um, and as always, like I can say, working grad school, doing the family thing, doing hood right things with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> out here in these streets trying to duck um, the whole Greek alphabet at this point, evidently. Jesus. <laughs> I, too, am vaccinated. Um, and, and to be honest, I did that specifically and explicitly for the purpose of evading travel restrictions because other countries all over the globe, including Canada, had placed had begun um, placing travel restrictions on unvaccinated Americans. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't want no problems. <laughs> trying to get out of this country. <laughs> Just for a little bit. Just for a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Get the hell out of well, you know there's a lot going on outside and inside the country that we live in <laughs> um, since of which, our last since our last pod <laughs> speaking of which and one thing that we are not with I'm talking about it just to say we're not going to talk about it um, but I have noticed though that um, and I, I don't know if you noticed it but mm-hmm. 
kind of a black withdrawal from the Olympics. And when I say withdrawal, like I just, I remember growing up and I remember the Olympics being a big ass deal, even in our community. And whether or not we had a lot of us competing at that, whether or not there was a lot of black folks competing in any one um, sport, we watched the Olympics and it was a big thing. And we watched both the summer and winter games. I remember that being really important. I can't remember the last time I took it upon myself to watch anything about the Olympics, period. Like, Yeah, yeah, like I'm paying attention to, you know, updates that people post on social media but that's really about it i feel no compulsion whatsoever and it's not because i'm boycotting anything and it's not because um she richardson didn't make it like or you know simone biles now has withdrawn is not for any of those reasons like i just don't care as much and i don't think i cared that much about the last one that much um, I damn sure didn't care nothing about the last Winter Olympics. <laughs> yeah, I haven't um, done my Olympics uh, watching has been very limited. I, I mean, I, I kind of see stuff that's going on. Mind you, I like sports. I mean, it's, well, I shouldn't say sports in general, but like specifically basketball and that stuff. But I'm not really paying yeah. attention at, to any Olympic coverage right now. Mm-hmm none and and i don't really know anyone who is um for the first time like even if the topic comes up with other friends most of the time it doesn't come up period but if the topic even comes up with other friends they the, they preface it by asking are you watching it no have you been watching no eh, not really yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> like there, there's i am feeling a general apathy really like we you know and we we care about like the little headlines and the hot button topics and like if anybody black wins in general (laughs) (laughs) like you know Uh, yeah yeah especially with like like, this day and age yeah it's like you you know and I, i would i would really love to see down the line and again this is not a topic to stay on but I would really love to see if there's a thought process or an analysis that can be teased out there. But like, is it part of the aftermath of like, you know, all of our, you know, Black Lives Matter and uprisings and everything? Because like there there has to be a lot. I, I feel like a lot of our attitudes across the board have changed about a lot of things in the past year, year and a half. I think black well, folks have shifted really in a big way. Well, it goes both ways, right? Like you have like the general sense of people is extremely, you could say apathetic or um, even nihilistic, like they don't really give, care about anything. <laughs> or you have the people who kind of delve into the more celebrity culture, um, political celebrity culture, um, like the fantasy of certain things um and then there's the folks who just like don't care become real negative like it's i think with the pandemic and everything that's going on uh economically there's just a lot like that triggers people to go on both sides of the spectrum Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then of course you got those um 
<laughs> and I, I do kind of want to uh, loop it back to this once we get to another topic. So I probably want to, I probably want to write it down. But then, of course, you always got the Negroes who. It's like to them, and mind you, it's not like they're personally waging that much in terms of resistance and revolution or anything like that. They're not really doing much personally, but um, to move the social media forward at all. But there's just a certain amount of Black folks who you just can't do nothing. But like, like they make it seem like you just need to be about the revolution 24-7. Like you can't never laugh and smile and have a hamburger with nobody. Like you can't, you can't watch nothing. You can't unless it's like YouTube or Shahrazad Ali or something. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't, um, can't party, can't dance, can't fellowship. You can't go to no festivals. You can't, you know, <laughs> like it's you can't do anything but that. 24 yeah. 7. Yeah. I mean, it's all, uh, I think it's more of that reaction. Like, you get pushed to the extreme on one side, but you do have to remember, like, happiness and celebration is revolutionary as well, as long as it doesn't, like, turn into some indiv- individualism or Black capitalism kind of thing. I think, <laughs> like, being positive and just happy for your people, and like, that's, that's intrinsically part of revolution as well. You know, like the joy. It's but it's hard to be joyous when like there's so many triggers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I absolutely get the. Um, and a friend of mine and I were talking about, um, you know, just just with all of the things in terms of where the world and where this country is just at right now and one of the main reasons why I don't watch the news because the insisting upon like like okay so like back in the bush days like we could call it spin and calling it spin was fine and you could call it propaganda because that was really just the level it was at but now we're to a point where like literally you just sit and watch people say things that are just not reality period and like it's just not reality and 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 i i don't know and like you can tell that somebody knows that that's just not like like they say things that are equivalent to you and i both staring at a light at a taillight, let's say. The two of us will go, okay, that taillight is red. But these other human beings would go something akin to, oh, and we touched on this in the last episode, like, oh no, that's what they want you to believe. You see, it's actually lime green. And and this will be a Senate on the, um, this is, I'm sorry, this will be a um, Senator on the floor of Congress saying this, (laughs) like what what and that that is not only national news but that is literally what's being said on the floor of our house of legislature (laughs) like i'm about to say uh u.s politicians like they lie 24 7 (laughs) so it's all about like um 
it's 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 propaganda is to create a narrative um you know and a lot of times the u.s politicians and the u.s media work hand in hand to they manufacture consent they get you to agree with um what their point of view on different international interventions are as far as domestic laws um their inaction on policies Mm -hmm. um so Mm -hmm. i mean that's the I stopped watching MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, anything, um, because it's just they're propaganda machines. Um, And when it comes to like the reality of what people are experiencing, especially now, um, it just they don't really click, you know, like I was talking to you about (laughs) January 6th is like MSNBC is obsessed with it. And I mean were there important things that happened January 6th? Yes. Um, is it more important than let's say the expiration of the eviction moratorium? No, but you'll probably hear hours about January 6th or about Russia. Um, then you will hear about, let's say 6 million people who might be homeless in today. (laughs) Well, that's, that's exactly what I was, um, actually getting at, because mm-hmm. I, I happened to go, you know, um, visit um, Lois. I went to go visit my grandmother. And so, and, you know, as any elder Black person, they, they got the news on 24-7. And so yeah. it's just on, and, and she doesn't watch Fox News. I don't remember what, I think it was MSNBC, right? And, like, like it just, it it was it was traumatizing to witness yeah it literally traumatized me for those moments that i was there watching it or at least hearing it and it was being absorbed into my head because literally and and all of it was about january 6th which all of this to me is a whole you know propaganda and media circus for the simple fact that I know and you know not a single solitary thing is going to be done about any of it regardless to what so-called findings may be. Not Um, a thing. And I mean they're not going to find anything but even if they have some type of finding they're not going to like there's not going to be any action behind that. So what the hell difference does it make? And this whole commission and committee and investigation or whatever it is they got going back and forth about it by the time it ends it's going to be millions maybe billions of dollars having been spent it's uh it's like this political theater um democrats specific democrats liberals they they specifically love to like latch on to um these these events that have like some kind of uh cultural importance um but they know that ultimately it will go nowhere right like we saw the obsession with russia during trump's presidency um from the liberal side i'm talking about um you know of course republicans do it too it's u.s political theater it's how both sides kind of they can give the excuse that they're working on something except the something that they're working on is completely immaterial to the conditions of the people completely immaterial to the conditions of the people (laughs) completely but since we did um since we're talking about conditions that are material um let's get into the actual eviction moratorium 
excuse me, mm-hmm. the eviction moratorium that's um, set to expire for us today. Um, for you guys, it'll probably be a few days ago. But um, yes, um, the eviction moratorium set by the CDC um, is set to expire July 31st, 2021. Um, anybody listening, if you don't know, what an eviction moratorium is. It's intended to prevent landlords from evicting their tenants for a specified period. Um, Rent payments may continue to pile up for some tenants. A moratorium is enacted by the CDC um, and has been in place for months to help try to stem the spread of COVID-19. And the Congress is actually um, going, the House, I'm sorry, the House is actually adjourning for six weeks recess, um, and they have not extended the eviction moratorium, um, which is looking like it will threaten six million Americans with with immediate homelessness. Um, So this House is actually going on a six week recess um, and just allowing this thing to expire. Um, Uh Mind you, um, Pelosi has made a statement talking about how important it is to keep it in place. Um, we also have what they call the squad and progressive um, progressive wing of the House um, in D.C. for the Dems also protesting. You have AOC who's out there and um, a few, Corey Bush who's also out there um, protesting this. Um, the issue that I think we were kind of alluding to even earlier is like the, the Dems on both sides of the Dems, you know, the the centrist Dems, the progressive Dems, um, the speaker, they all knew that this day was coming. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you have to ask yourself, why wasn't this extended before you guys went on recess? Um, And then you have like the progressive wing who have voted to maintain the leadership who would allow this kind of thing to to recess. Uh Um, And then they'll go out and protest like they had nothing to do with it. So um, it's just like huge inaction um, by the government. And of course, the Republicans and conservatives are are right along with it. But I tend to focus more of my critique upon those who pretend to be um, for the people. Sure, indeed. Um, I was trying to find the information just so that I could quote it properly, um, more specifically for the state of New Jersey, because mm-hmm. there have actually been some updates recently with regard to, um, here we go. Um, so I'll just read it like really quickly. And this update was as a, oh, this is on June 24th. Oh no, there, there are even more recent updates than this. But um, just to give some uh, backdrop as to what's going on in the state of New Jersey in particular, because that's where we live. Um, let's see. Yeah, so so there's a differential between um, how the moratorium is being um, applied to folks depending on income. So this one source, um, NorthJersey.com, they say New Jersey's eviction moratorium could end earlier for those with higher incomes and the state may dole out 500 million more in rental relief under a bill that the state Senate and assembly unanimous, unanimously passed Thursday. That was the week of June um, 24th as part of a marathon voting session and sent to Governor Phil Murphy's desk to sign a veto. Under S3691 dash, sorry, backslash, um, 
A5685, a compromise bill between landlords and tenant groups. Renters who missed payments would be protected from eviction through August 31st of this year. If their annual household income is above 80% of the of the of their county's median median income. For tenants who make less than 80% of the median income of their county, they could be locked out of their home before they could not be locked out of their home before December 31st. So um, in essence, like there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but like to just quickly um, touch on some important things, that's meaning that um, in terms of renters and even if, um, because like the evictions are starting to go through the courts, um, so even if a ruling is passed down, then they can't actually begin removing you from your home until um, almost New Year's, right? So um, that's very important. There are some other really important updates and um, I'll look for those and come back with that information for our next recording because I'm pretty sure that we'll you know, dig more into these things with that as well. And so there's some really um, interesting and exciting updates uh, coming out basically on a weekly basis. Um, I happen to um, work in a community action um, program who like we, you know, deal with these types of things and being on these types of committees and uh, human services advisory councils and what have you. Like I sit on these types of committees for like counties and stuff like that all the time. Um, so there's constant information coming out almost on a daily basis about updates to this and, you know, the different things that not only tenants, but now there's starting to be more um, things out there for uh, landlords as well. Yeah, so the state of New Jersey has been um, working to find solutions that would support tenants and landlords. Um, of course, I'm always more on the side of the working class and you know the folks who do not own things, um, but people who own properties are people too. And because I, I actually know, yes. Um, so. I'm sorry, I'm just doing the silliest thing in the world that I should not be doing, which is looking at a work email because my, my supervisor sent, yeah, my supervisor like sent a bunch of meeting invites, which is okay. Cause it's like, you know, weekly supervision or whatever stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. He just sent something else confusing, but whatever. I'm just gonna accept it and move on. Anywho, um, but yeah, so working to find solutions that include um, landlords and tenants. Of course, there are many um, folks who own who are slumlords in the world. Um, and that's a whole lot of folks, especially when it comes to folks who own property in our communities. And I mean, like, you know, whole swaths of properties that are, you know, multifamily or like apartment buildings and stuff like that. Um, but then uh, I, I like to also make room or hold space for um, within the nuance of that, you know, like how we always make 
well, not you and I necessarily, but like the going jokes nowadays is about, you know, LLC Twitter and like all the different types of like sectors of black Twitter. Um, <laughs> and like there's a big boom in terms of real estate, in terms of um, black folks. Like that's like the goal now to, you know, be in your 30s or 40s or even 50s and be a, you know, one or multiple renter property. Oh, I heard you saying Jessica. So I'll kind of like that. That's a really big thing. That's a really big thing right now um, to be like in your 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s, being young, black and um, home ownership like you know that's always something that we talk about in the black community so much about um you know building wealth means owning a home and um you know how much that's a part of the american dream where many of us don't talk about that aspect of it necessarily whether or not it aligns with the american dream but um we often talk about how like the implications of the accrual or the lack of ability to accrue wealth across generations for black folks had the majority to do with, you know, unfair lending practices and real estate and, and land ownership and homes and all that type of stuff throughout the last several generations. Um, so all of that, you know, that's like the thing now. Um, even, even if real estate and all that type of stuff is not even your career or anything you really know anything about. Like, <laughs> like I know folks who are real estate agents on the side or, and, or they themselves own at least one property and like they're into the, you know, flipping properties thing. Um, and this is definitely, yeah, we, we really should dig into um, black folks and ownership of homes and whatever for another topic. But because um, I don't, I don't want to stray too far from the eviction moratorium thing, but I definitely try in my analysis and in my thought process to hold space for the fact that maybe not everybody's a slumlord and for <laughs> the fact that there are folks like you and I as in, you know, in our age group or, you know, the age groups we're approaching and whatnot, who are more small time landlords, maybe they own one property um, renting to a couple families. And so, you know, missing somebody's rent because, and they just have a regular ass job. It's not like, you know, this person works as a teacher, but they have um, a rental property or few. So, any one person missing rent, like that's paycheck to paycheck for you. I don't, I don't, I definitely think that there needs to be nuance there where um, we talk about economics for black folks and how it's so, e even with the income that some of us may have, it's still paycheck to paycheck because that generational wealth is not there, right? 
And so even if you do own some property or you have a business or whatever that brings in money, if any slight hiccup, and I mean slight, even like needing to repair a gutter system or needing to do some roofing on said rental property, it's, it's breaking the bank for you. It's putting you in the poorhouse. <laughs> like you may not even be able to pay your own mortgage and rent. Um, so, you know, holding space for that and therefore being grateful that there is some type of um, work being done to give respite to landlords as well, just for those people sake. You know what I mean? I did want to get back to the the actual expiration of the eviction moratorium. Um we talked before, you know, we started talking about like manufacturing consent and manipulation of the media and politicians. Um, as we know, the Democrats do hold the house, the white, the they right now they're they're leading in majority in the House, Congress, uh, Senate um, and the White House. Um, but it looks like the spin now from a lot of the Democrats is like it's the Republicans fault for blocking the eviction moratorium. Um, and just to be clear, um, this seems to be an issue that they pushed to vote to extend just two days, about a day or two before the expiration of it. So this is something that we've known that's been in place um, that was not a priority um, to be voted upon. And also the vote that they put it up for um, was actually unanimous consent. Um, and if you're aware of how that actually works in our government, unanimous consent is something that the um, something is put forth for a vote. And if there is any objection whatsoever, um, then that act is not enacted. Um, so basically, um, there are several different types of votes that can be had, um, including majority vote, which obviously we know um, the Dems hold majority. So. Um, the expiration of this uh, moratorium itself could have been avoided completely if only they put in a majority vote. Um, typically what happens when you put a vote in to, for unanimous, you wanna see that it's either voted for um, unanimously or it's something that you hope fails because you want the side that you are um, opposed to to be the one that looks like they're not doing their job. And so one vote against it would kill the act okay. um and so we something have here like, uh, um, what they did with the uh, minimum wage yeah something like that exactly <laughs> yeah something like that something like that the same the same exact thing pretty much you know um so that's the situation we have and we have pelosi who um you know she's talking about you know her caring about this situation um but the fact is is through their actions themselves that did not occur um this could have been extended, um, but was not. And so, you know, that's where frustration comes in when you see um, like this political theater, oh, you know, the Republicans didn't allow us to do this. And the Democrats have all of the ability to do it. They can push through um, legislation that would help millions of people. Instead, they're kind of uh, passively letting this thing go by, but while doing so, they want to have the aesthetics that they're against said thing you know um so it's just like this big act that's occurring <laughs> between both sides um and, and for me it even extends to the progressive side because you have people like i mentioned earlier like aoc and cory bush who they say a lot of things that appeal to people who have quote-unquote progressive 
politics um they they like to be looked at as the antithesis to someone like let's say a pelosi um but meanwhile they voted for her they voted to maintain her presence um so in this thing it's just like i can't take either side seriously um and now on top of the end of the uh the eviction moratorium um, and the Washington Post just put up an article that says uh, White House official White House officials do not believe that there is political will in Congress to explain to extend unemployment benefits for nine million lapsing people in September. Um, this is separate from the three hundred dollars supplement. So now we have a situation where um, these benefits expire in September. And right now, currently, there's not political will in Congress to even extend these. Um, and mind you, these things are expiring while COVID cases are rapidly increasing across the country again due to the Delta variant and uh, and people who are not masked. Um, so um, that's where we currently are. <laughs> and I know that people said, like, you know, things would be, you know, a change from Trump would be better, but we see that the lives of, of millions of people, you have 9 million people who could possibly lose their unemployment benefits. You have 6 million people who could be homeless um, as of today, right now, um, due to just the the complete lack of empathy or care from both sides of the aisle in Washington. Yeah, I wish that I had um, prepared ahead of time uh, information on the salaries of each of these esteemed members of our um, uh, federal legislature. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I wish Senate. I wish I, um, I had uh, that somewhere. Um, yeah. No, we can we can actually have a you know uh, we we have some plans to talk about some other things, but you know these people are millionaires. Right. Um, a lot of the people they're are all, Pelosi. They're all wealthy people every single one of them <laughs> yeah they're all wealthy people like yeah. it's 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 beyond belief it's beyond think belief. about it think about it like this too right um you have pelosi she's invested a, a million into tesla um for things like police cars right um and the president is the father of the crime bill um and also, we're going to get into the uh, the tough on crime act that they're trying to instill now to kind of drum that crime bill 2.0 support up. But you have like Pelosi, who she sunk a million into Tesla for police cars. You have pres, you know, the President Biden, who's a staunch, um, you know, supporter of the police. He's actually doubled the amount of. Uh, of funding he would like to send to police, you know, after protesting forever um but specifically with the black lives matter protests that occurred last summer um a lot of which that his campaign tried to uh tried to capitalize on mm -hmm. he's doubling the amount of uh his money that he wants to be sent to police um but with that the, re the reason i'm trying to make that police um connection and the, the high amount of money that goes into its investments to the police from our government is with these moratoriums you have six million people who are homeless. Mm -hmm. That means there's going to be more homeless people on the street. You know, in L.A. right now, there's a big uh, persecution of homeless people, arresting them and, um, you know, 
defiling the places that they sleep and trying to get them off of the streets and arresting them. Um, so you see what happens with, with a situation that, like this. Like, um, so, so one thing that um, is very important in uh, social policy and legislature and even in like zoning and all those types of things like across the country is um, uh, cities and, and uh, counties deciding whether or not to because a lot of people are sleeping in their cars and this has been you know this has been happening especially um, with all of the uh issues with teaching as well because um throughout the pandemic like there's a teacher shortage as well but please do not take my my use of that language to mean that there's literally a shortage of teachers because there's not an actual shortage of teachers there is a shortage of or, or rather a lack of willingness to um be supportive of teachers and I mean, be supportive of teachers in the ways of providing proper salary, proper benefits, proper leave, proper breaks, um, proper supports for health, physical health and mental health. Um, there are many administrators, administrations and school districts that are rather abusive toward um, teachers and other staff. Um, there is there, there are many school districts in which there's the philosophy of the parent is always right, but it's not because they actually give a crap about the parents or they actually want to support the parents. It's because they just don't want to get sued by happenstance. Um, and they, they don't want public, they don't want bad publicity as in because that tends to happen. Like, you know, if a parent makes a complaint or something like that, like it can easily get on the news and they and, and some parents will actually, you know, go about making it get on the news. And, and so folks don't want the publicity. They don't want the lawsuits. And so um, they in turn put the pressure and the, um, you know, ignoring or whatever else have you on the instructional staff on the faculty and as a result on top of the low salaries and the fact that most teachers across the country come out of pocket for the supplies and things for their kids um and for nice activities and things of that sort and some of that has to do with money and some of that has to do with budget and some of that just has to do with overwhelming bureaucracy because many school districts to so much as get a damn pencil is it's okay. You'll get the pencil next year. <laughs> like it's, it's ridiculous. Um, all of the pomp and circumstance involved around that. And so throughout the pandemic, um, folks found other jobs or they were making more money, um, being laid off as many may have been. And so folks are not going back to teaching. And rightly so. I mean, I've even seen stories of some some um, folks, more so women, um, they started the OnlyFans over, and I'm being serious. They started the OnlyFans during the pandemic because you know, teaching, and they're never they're never going back to a teaching job ever again in life. <laughs> and I don't blame them. <laughs> and by the way, we pro sex work over here, so you know, no shaming in that aspect. Um, but yes, yeah, saying saying that to say that there are many folks uh, to double back to um, 
the original point. There are many folks, including professionals, including adjunct professors, including grad students, people with actual jobs, two and three jobs, who are living in their cars across the country. And that was before the pandemic. And now that's going to exponentially rise. And it's creating an issue um, in municipalities, making them, you know, put that as a a thing that needs to be worked on, like something that they need to create um, laws around as to, because then cops going around harassing the people because, you know, you're not allowed to sleep in your car in people's parking lots or on people's properties. So that's another issue um, with policing. Um, and, and so that's an issue across the country as well. With the rent moratorium ending, um, it's intrinsic that crime would go up because you have a huge influx of, and I'm going to say crime with quote with quotes because I mean, it's what is classified as crime, um, which could mean I'm just a homeless person. I'm just a homeless person existing. Um, the rent moratorium ends, which means that crime is going up, which also means that police presence will begin to surge, and you'll see more police arrests for more petty things um, instead of the government doing what the government mean, government needs to do, which is like extend the moratorium or extend unemployment benefits or another stimulus. Um, instead, they're funding military and the police in huge numbers. Um, and now the Democrats are funding the police double what the Republicans did and Trump did. Um, and all this does is propagate gentrification, right? So you have these areas being policed now. Um, so you have the president who created economic surplus off of uh, over over policing people um, and crazy drug laws, um, and they're continuing to uh, to keep their necks on the people's. You know, uh, it's ridiculous, but it's it has to, those kind of things have to be seen in that kind of lens where it's like um, it's all a domino effect. You know. It, it all relates to itself um, in that sense. Right. Um, all the domino effects are related. Um, and it brings us back to, especially with regard to, you know, d- doubling back to the point about, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi and the, the absolute political theater and the circus that literally anything to do with the United States government and the media as, you know, folks like to call that the fourth branch of government. Um, The media, regardless to what side it tends to fall on, um, being total proponents of that and, you know, how that whole tendency of a circus as it's been evolved out of reporting and not reporting um, our political theater. Now how that has influenced, let's just call it a ball of confusion. (laughs) (laughs) Ball of confusion (laughs) with regard to the latest happenings, let's call them, um, mm-hmm. in our, it, w- within the Americas, within our hemisphere, um, you know, and, and that, that talking about coupling that influencer culture, as we began to talk about it before, and 
following the stories, following mm-hmm. the personalities, and all of the different types of spin and perspectives that are out there on top of the actual um, events, the perceptions of those events, and investigating what led up to those events. Um, and how all that parses with the actual material conditions of the people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said before, like we're 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 going to spend more time in depth in terms of where the U.S. and interaction with not only the U.S. but like the Western world, period with yeah. you know those countries namely haiti and cuba um as of late we're going to talk yeah. more in depth about that um later on but i definitely wanted you to get to your thoughts on um haiti and cuba here. oh um yeah as you said and just for everybody out there um we plan to do some more themed episodes so we'll get more into the actual specifics when it comes to like u.s intervention um, and also just, you know, certain policies that have been uh, implemented, uh, different political happenings of, around the world globally. We'll get into those more in depth. Um, but recently in the news, I know a lot of you have seen about Cuba. Um, I think that the hashtag was SOS Cuba. And then uh, we have the going ons with the uh, assassination of the president of Haiti also recently. And um, why those things are related is because people um, on different on several different sides were calling for and I, I won't say people because I'll just say the government itself. Uh, the government itself was calling for their own intervention <laughs> into both of these uh, sovereign nations um, to continue influencing the politics in both of those countries. Um, but I guess, you know, we could start with Cuba. Um, like mm-hmm. I said, we're just going to kind of run through it. But um, there was a small protest um, that happened um, in People were uh, anti-Cuban government protests, uh, and the U.S. media kind of picked it up. Um, and they've been running, you know, the typical campaign that happens about every ten years, um, which is, you know, communism bad, Cuba bad, um, the USA good. Uh, that's the essential. <laughs> that's the essential position take that's usually happened for my government, um, and not exaggerating either. You had President Biden, you had the Speaker. Uh, they all come out and um, not only um, speak against the Cuban government, but also speak against communism um, and socialism uh, as uh, systems, economic systems, right, mm-hmm. and demonize it. And um, also uh, praise capitalism as being a a model in which people should live their lives and that should be installed in these countries. Um, And that's a very important word to use is um, installed and, um, you know, intervene in these countries. Um, And at the same time, you have people who are pro-Cuba government. Uh, A lot of the people who live there, uh, a lot of those protests were in large numbers and for pro-Cuba government um, and also pro-socialism and pro-communism. So there's um, continues to be, you know, this debate uh, between both sides. Um, But I think what I kind of more want to focus on is just the U.S. intervention aspect. Um, And typically when people talk about Cuba, 
they centered their analysis on Castro. Um, and instead of doing that, I kind of like to center my analysis on who I deem as the common, um, the common, not ones, you know, you can say enemy or, or common, uh, troublemaker and that would be the united states uh so you have to ask yourself why the u.s hates cuba and typically um u.s politicians will always go back to just castro and communism and socialism as being the evildoer here um but i think nowadays it's it's good to see that people are recognizing more and more that the embargo and sanctions are doing a lot to threaten the lives of cuban people um but before i go any deeper um did you have any uh any thoughts on Cuba? Um, my thoughts are very similar to yours. Um, like for, for, for me, I, so of course I, I have my leanings and different um, aspects, but I'm also constantly most concerned with the material conditions of the people on the working class. Um, and so to that and I, I don't think so. So I don't side with Cuba's government and I don't necessarily side against it. I side against it. it I do. OK, so I do side against it in the ways that it's been abusive towards its people because it has been. And there's been evidence to show that it has. But um I am not uh, oblivious to the fact that a good chunk of the reasons why, if not the majority of the reasons why um, Cuba is as poor as it is, or the people of Cuba is as poor as they are, is is because of you know the international embargo, the U.S. embargo, and also you know the removal of support by the Soviet Union at whatever point that was in what like the 80s, 90s, whatever that was, um, and, and you know all those things on top of each other, and also um, the U.S. government and you know uh, Western entities basically punishing Cuba time and time again for their support of independence movements of Black countries across the world. Um, So that's definitely been costly for them. All of that does not necessarily mean that they have been good to the Black people of Cuba. (laughs) And that's kind of where I I enter on that, too. Um, So there's a lot of problematic stuff within the government since almost day one and within how the people live and experience themselves. Like what, what I have seen in addition to, you know, the 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 SOS um, Cuba uh, protests, which tend to be on U.S. soil, markedly, and tend to be obviously white Cubans, markedly. Um, in addition to that, there there are protests on the island, exa- and it's very difficult to suss out what is what due to the ways that the U.S. media has chosen to cover or not cover it. Um, more yeah. specifically, um, just to be specific, um, it was 
shown that I think it was NBC or one of the channels were showing clips of which they claim to be anti-government protests, but they were actually um, like 2019 May Day pro-government mm-hmm. mm-hmm. protests. Um, and also the UN had used a picture of a black mm-hmm. Cuban woman and said um, and basically said that she was anti-government they or insinuated it rather and she's actually a very prominent black socialist revolutionary who lives in Cuba who's pro-government um, and she requested that mm-hmm. they take her picture down and then Twitter blocked her account right <laughs> uh, so right. Um, yeah there's just been a mixed message um, happening and people manipulating the messages uh, to fit right. their and political purpose. Right, to that purpose. end, um, what I have seen, I have seen groups of Black Cubans like this. So, so there have been protests and there have been within the past several years, especially in like 2017, 2019, there were um, dissident protests of Cubans in Cuba and whatnot, you know, the, the government didn't uh, behave so fondly um, with regards yeah. to that. Th- then again, no government does, right? Um, <laughs> and I'm not yeah, saying I was that, actually gonna, I, yeah, I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but no government does. Um, with, I was going to point out dissident. just one just one tidbit. Go ahead. I was going to point out one tidbit on that. Um, so uh, just to bring everyone up to date, um, Secretary Blinken and the U.S. government and Biden himself have actually installed new sanctions um, as of the end of this week on Cuba. Wait, wait, wait. Um, so before you, before you, you get had there. a lot of before you get uh, there. No, but I just I just wanted to mention this part, though, Um, the reason for they give the reason for that as being um, the Cuban government uh, using the police to silence protesters. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the irony. So the irony, um, I just wanted to link that with the fact that you said no government is perfect. Um, So I think the, the part that really mystifies a lot of people is the whole thought of American exceptionalism when you have um possibly the most violent and brutal police force in the global world is the American police force. Um, And evidence of that is just last year's protests where um, hundreds of protesters were injured, um, killed, um, abused um, throughout the entire, for months. Um, And then they put out a statement formally this week that says we're increasing sanctions because we're concerned about the Cuban government's use of their police force. It's, it's astounding the, the hypocrisy. Um, Yeah. And, and, and to take that a step further. So what I was going to bring up as well is that there are black folks in Cuba and I really want to stick with the, the black perspective um, for a good reason, <laughs> um, in that there are black folks in Cuba who are, you know, tired of their regime or whatever else have you. But I have seen in very specific terms those same people, which is entirely different than the perspective that's been given by white Cubans, because you keep hearing them saying, you know, the U.S. needs to do something. You know, the U.S. needs to come help us, blah, 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 or the U.S. needs to go help them, because most of those people saying that are here. Um, But, you know, the U.S. needs to go help them, blah, blah, blah. Um, Those black Cubans on the ground, no matter how much they may dislike their own government they're very 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 vehemently 
um, opposed to U.S. intervention. And I've even seen like, you know, footage of some elders, like, cause you know, they're asking people in the streets, like how you feel this, this and that. And like, even elders going, um, yeah, no, we, we don't want, of course, saying in Spanish, like, yeah, we, we do not want the U.S. to come here and do anything. We want them to stay completely the hell out of here. And if they think they're going to show up and start doing something, we Cubans are ready to fight and we will. And I'm specifically one of them. I'm talking about one specific elder. It's just that I, I don't have the link to her actual words right this moment. Um, but she was not the only one that that is a common sentiment that like, yeah, like it's it's shitty and we don't like our government and everything like that. But this is a job for the Cubans to work out. Um, what you all need to do is to get out of our way economically. Um, but we don't want you to literally do anything else. Like, do not come here. Do not bring your government here do not bring your um so-called resources here do not bring your um your your armed forces here for damn sure <laughs> to do anything um and and i do believe i get the sense that that's a common opinion <laughs> that that's a that's a common perspective i don't i don't think that it is desire at least by the black folks in cuba that they want the u.s president there at all I yeah, that. I think um, we have to think of like post-revolutionary regimes because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, w I would like to actually get into con like into this conversation on that more in-depth episode, but I can just give the brief overview now. It's like um, we have to think of the realities for post-revolutionary mm -hmm. governments, right? And the way I, I, I say that is because there was a revolution in Cuba. You know, pre-Castro, um, half of the land was owned by American companies in Cuba, right? Um, you had, uh, uh, at that time in the 50s, um, well, not, well, yeah, it was 1950, um, the U.S. companies controlled two-thirds of Cuba's, like, production. So in, in the economy, uh, so you have all kinds of things that were happening there in which U.S. maintained control of that economy. Um, and there was obviously a system of discrimination and slavery uh, hinged upon the backs of the black Cubans. Um, so we have to think of like post-revolutionary governments as still um, unequal and there's still issues and complex um, without necessarily discussing U.S. intervention and regime change, because we know what U.S. intervention means. Um, and if we don't, we're going to discuss it more <laughs> in, in future episodes. Um, but it's U.S. intervention typically involves the U.S. Uh, and U.S. companies coming in and taking over the economy, um, U.S. politicians controlling the government, like in Cuba, since we're talking about Cuba, um, the U.S. imposed the Platt Amendment on the Cuban Constitution. Um, so, like, different things happened in these countries when we talk about intervention from the United States that typically does not improve the lives of those who live there it typically makes them worse um so there is a way to discuss post-revolutionary governments um and how they need to change to improve the material lives of the people there without necessarily bringing the united states into it you know and it's also for the people to dictate because those people are a sovereign nation and people um 
so yeah very complicated right and that's that's kind of that's that's my thing like like you said you know they they um imposed the platinum um amendment on the cuban constitution like where do you get off well let's actually i'm sorry go ahead there's haiti right yeah like like where where do you get off making legislature that you think applies to somebody else's entire uh government <laughs> like yeah. it's not your country like what, what, I... yeah um we were gonna we we spoke a lot about cuba but you know um, i'm sure many people know now especially since it's been some time since it happened but um the the former haitian president was assassinated um there's all kinds of different ideas about how it how or who did it um the insinuation from a lot of people is that the U.S. was involved in some way. Um, but more specifically, um, when we talk about like how when it comes to the U.S. imposing legislature and um, impact on people's economy, I mean, Haiti has been a victim of that forever from the U.S. You know, we've been intervening, quote unquote, there for decades upon decades. to the detriment of the people. (laughs) Um, You know, even more as recent as, you know, people talk about the Clintons and um, Hillary being very influential when it came to lowering the minimum wage in Haiti, um, choosing which presidents would serve in Haiti um, for the benefit of, you know, American business. Um, So intervention from the U.S. is forever a complicated uh, topic, but it's more complicated because of how they intervene in these countries. Uh, their intervention is what it is. That's not the complicated part, you know? Um, we know what what's being called for when people call for U.S. intervention. Right, right. And to that end, so um, I definitely wanted to, and we'll reiterate this when we do get to the um, U.S. intervention um, topic, and I need to write that down so that we do that later. <laughs> U.S. foreign intervention. Um, and so one thing, like anybody who knows me well enough knows that, you know, like I, I have a special um, deep uh, love and admiration and connection to Haiti and Haitian people. And, and to that end, um, one of my best friends and I were, who's Haitian, um, were discussing, you know, all, like in real time as all of this was unfolding and like, you know, comparing notes, sharing notes as to um, both, like, like what the media was saying and what people were saying all across the board being, you know, here in America, any Haitians like anywhere in the diaspora and then also um, Haitian media outlets and Haitian people in Haiti um, about all of the conditions and what have you and what was going on, what was rumored and and what type of presidency um, Moise actually had and how complicated that was, you know, what he was and was not involved in, what he was trying to work toward and not, including up until the day, um, working to get electricity to the entire island 24-7, which is not something they have. And if you didn't know, now you know. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, so talking about all those things and the point was brought up to piggyback off what you're saying about just just looking at 
the um and there's an infograph uh, infographic that we'll we will probably post maybe um on our social media to echo the point but there's an analysis that's been done you know like on all of the presidents of haiti to date and of course you know within that infographic there's there's um it gives you you know the breaking down by color and by you know year going all the way back to Dessalines and talking about you know who all died in office who all um resigned or who was executed and who was assassinated who um was exiled who was uh thrown in jail or deposed who got um overthrown while in office and and, you know going down that whole list and you know discussing which applied to each one of them um, going down and the only and then the of course um ones who served full term and it was just so interesting to see you know she had pointed out you know, the only times that we had stable presidents that served full term was like, you know, this particular block of years. And I think it was um, 1911 or 1914 to 1934. And I had a hunch and I'm like, hmm, that sounds like what I think it is. So I did go back just to verify um, the, the the span of time there. And of course, those were the literal, that was this literal span of time years. I'm sorry. The it, it was, I think, 1911 to 1946, where that those are the only times where there were Haitian presidents consecutively that served their entire term. Um, and that was the span of time during which the U.S. had invaded Haiti and had completely taken over the island. Right. Um, and that was like, I think, like 1910 or 1911 to 1930 something. Um, so and then, of course, the last folks that they put in power was like the Duvaliers, I think. I think that was Papa Doc. And then, you know, going on down to Baby Doc and whatever. And, and all of their influence with them and dealings with them and um and I like I can go on about Haitian history forever, but it, it was just the most interesting thing about that, that literally the only time they had so-called stable presidencies and so-called and I really strongly mean so-called so-called um, stable economy was literally those um, that chunk of times where they where the U.S. was directly in military control of Haiti. Not to say that we haven't had control ever since then, because they have. <laughs> and not to say that there hasn't been involvement and intervention since then, because obviously it has been. U.S. intervention wholly, though, has been completely um, a nightmare. I think as far as uh, when it comes to the actual controlling of the government um, and influencing the Haitian presidents or Haitian elite to kind of do what the U.S. wants the country to do. Um, they haven't necessarily been um, influenceless, I guess you could say. Um, so to have like control over who is leading a nation um, is it's like some made for TV stuff. It's like stuff that people think is like completely fantasy um, or they kind of look at it as like conspiracy. But um, once you actually look into it, you see like um 
this stuff is real <laughs> like this stuff is real uh so um, we're actually gonna have a whole conversation about um intervention of the u.s globally we're going to talk about the global south a little bit um because i definitely want to get into some of the revolutionary um acts and actions that happened with our neighbors to the global south yeah um and uh, of course we're always going to be you know our, our hearts always go out to haiti there, there's always that real intimate relationship between african americans and 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 uh the country of haiti which I think we've discussed before. Yeah, <laughs> so there's always yeah. that. The Haitian Revolution itself was a, like mm-hmm. a beacon, you know, for for people of African descent globally. Beacon for us. Um, Many of so, us at the time yeah. um, escaped slavery here and went there. Many Haitian mm-hmm. folks left there and came here there are many um and i mean they didn't just go they didn't just all go to louisiana now they went to places throughout the south um and even up through the country the 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 city of chicago was founded by haitian man (laughs) not to be confused so um and and if many of us afro-americans especially those of us with our roots in the south and you know some of us have those french last names or what have you if we dig back in our um family trees and we could actually do that work we may find that we actually have some Haitian um, ancestors uniquely Um, but yeah there's always been throughout time a lot of exchange back and forth between um, Haitian folks and Afro-American folks and I do want to I want to backtrack just a little bit because this might actually segue us into um, one of our last topics is um, I wanted to say happy birthday to our elder Asada Shakur who um, 74 years old um, and she is still in Cuba um, and I think it's it, it bears remembering um, that she still has a U.S. government enforced a $2 million bounty on her head for being caught in a war waged on Black communities in the U.S. Um, and and that, that bounty was up during the Obama presidency, wasn't yes, that? Yes, it was. Um, which again shows the relationship that the United States has with our neighbors to the global South and why they continue to have an agenda when it comes to their relations with them. Um, so thankful that she is safe and well. Um, she continues to to be outspoken um, when it comes to her people and uh, just want to wish her a happy birthday as well. Um, but that does segue us into, um, it's for us recording this August 1st, which means it's Black August. And it's very much related to our elder Asada um, because uh, Black August, if you guys don't know what Black August is, it's a commitment to political prisoners um, and solidarity to those political prisoners. Um, so it's a it's a month that we are that we should practice and um, think of the different conditions in our prisoner and political prisoners who are still um, being persecuted. Um, and honor them and tribute and recognition to them. It's not necessarily like one of those months that people should be dancing in the streets. It's more of a a conscious uh, building month um, 
to to be more uh, strategic and to uh, commemorate those people who have sacrificed their lives um, for the betterment of their people. And in getting to that topic, um, we had originally plan to, again, not talk about the um, release of a certain celebrity and getting into all of that. Didn't want to get into those weeds. But we wanted to, um, and this is a perfect time to tie that in with Black August, keeping in mind, you know, the um, political prisoners of war, as we like to refer to them, um, folks who have really, really, really given up like the ultimate sacrifices in the fight toward the liberation and just really humane treatment of um, folks of African descent in the United States. Um, there was a, a beautiful thing that you had um, shared in pre-pro, which I definitely want to make sure that we don't miss, which um, is the campaign to I'm trying to get to it so um, we definitely wanted to you know lend our voices to help publicize in our own little small way um, the mutual aid for veteran Black Panther Party members Um, and there are different uh, membership levels that you can select there but in short This is a campaign to help fund and help support um, the members of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and our, you know, esteemed uh, uh, prisoners of war who are now, you know, getting up in age. They're they're elders, elders, like they're in their, you know, 70s, 80s and so on. Many of them in not the best of health. Many of them are still incarcerated. Um, Mumi Abu-Jamal being one. And, you know, his health is is in any type of condition at any point, right? And, and you know, there are folks who still do that work and try their best to provide resources and at least, um, you know, humane treatment, ensure humane treatment, advocacy, and at least keep tabs on how they're doing uh, behind bars. But, um, you know, this is one of the funds that is there so that we can keep supporting, um, you know, their their healthcare um, and just their general uh, quality of life at all, you know? And, And as they get old, as I said, because that's that's a thing now. I think that more than anything, uh, a lot of people should take from this month, you know, to to think about the sacrifices um, that our elders make, but even, you know, our brothers and sisters now are making um, to to help push revolutionary change um, in the United States and abroad. Um, so it's very important, I think, to find different resources to to help to give back to those people. Um, but that's what Black Black August is for: is to commemorate our um, political prisoners and those people who um, have continue to give that sacrifice um, and celebrate our freedom fighters. Um, so there's actually a lot of history around Black August because a lot of different um, events happened in the month of August specifically. Um, in the realm of freedom fighting, um, which we could go through. That might be a great uh, 
<laughs> that might be a great episode. So I think I'll table that. But there's so many different um, struggles and um, and revolts and rebellions that occurred in, specifically in the month of August um, and in the continental United States. So I think we can we should definitely do that episode because I would like to go over those. Um, I have a list here. So um, and if you want to go through it before we do, um, you can check out Black August. I believe it's blackaugustpo.org. Um, I think they have a whole article on it. But if you don't check that out, we'll go through it and um, talk about some of those different revolts and rebellions and mm-hmm. give you guys some more Black August info before the month ends. And the link to um, that mutual aid for veteran Black Panther Party members is actually www.patreon.com slash veteran BPP mutual aid. So you can go check that out for yourself. Um, you know, give $1, $2, $5. <laughs> little bit helps. $10, $25. But definitely, yeah support that support 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 um it's powered by community movement builders and it lists some of the black panthers um, black panther support committee um who are supporting the patreon so definitely um and you can join that mutual aid and there's others floating around um i'll try to gather a couple for that black august episode and we can um discuss those as well yeah um before we end the episode I do want to say rest in peace um, to Glenn Ford. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bye, bye, too. Yeah. He uh, passed away this week. Um, rest in peace to him. He was, uh, wow, a leader in the Black radical tradition. Um, definitely helped to extend. You know, I see this, you know, he passed away, and I see everybody um, who, you know, loved his work. Um, talking about his impact and I think it it all is like uh, a lot of it's the same because he had the same impact on people but I guess I'll reiterate what the other hundred people I saw kind of say this is he had a huge impact to help uh, extend my revolutionary like praxis and analysis Mm -hmm. Um, you know there are other elders who did that Kwame Ture and Nkrumah but um, as far as contemporary um, mm-hmm. It was definitely Glenn Ford. Um, he's the founder of the Black Agenda Report, who I also follow. Mm-hmm. Um, so rest in peace to him. Uh, if you don't know about Glenn Ford, you can look up, just Google him. Um, his debates, um, his speeches, um, definitely a man who uh, had the highest of standards when it comes to you know speaking his mind and speaking the truth when it comes to Black revolutionary and Black radical tradition. Um, amazing elder now turned ancestor. Um, I actually have personal connection um, to the ancestor. He um, so like I don't know if I actually detailed this in an episode before. I just always kind of mm-hmm. glance over it and I say that I've been you know leadership in Pan Africanist <laughs> organizations because I don't necessarily. Uh, I don't necessarily want people to think I'm like, you know, trashing them, even if they deserve to be mm-hmm. trashed. So, <laughs> but I, I've been um, local and um, international leadership in the uh, International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, right? Isn't that it? 
International People's Democratic, yeah, MPM, um, which is supposed to be like the 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 fist of the Uhuru movement and African People's Socialist Party. I never actually joined the party, and I have very real reasons why I never did that. But um, <laughs> no matter how much uh, you know, I, I tend towards socialism. Um, I have very real reasons. Um, material reasons and also philosophical reasons as an African person, as an African-centered person, why I didn't do that. But, um, and I left that organization for real reasons. It's, it's, it's a mess, but whatever. So, um, that was my introduction to Glenn Ford because, um, and, he, and for me, he was one of the few, um, spots of sunshine being involved in any of that. Um, and you know like get, getting to be around him getting to meet him um learn from much of his political thought um that being like actual curriculum for us like during plenary and things like that um and again you know how how he may have um influenced what was you know written in the burning spear and so forth and in addition to that one of my closest friends is actually um his nephew um, because you know Glenn Floyd is uh he's 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 a Jersey boy so um and I've yeah. and I've actually run into him a lot a lot of times like in Penn Station especially because he was always hopping back and forth so um yeah so I, I I you know have very close personal connections to to the elder um and so you know he'll definitely be missed in that aspect. Um, not being able to see, you know, what his latest analysis on, you know, all things <laughs> um, would be. He's he's definitely his voice is definitely going to be um, missed in that regard. And you know, my heart goes out to my homeboy, who of course, um, like I said, that was his uncle, and they were very close. Um, so my heart goes out to him and um, and all all of his family, everybody who's suffering a loss, a personal loss, and then of course everyone who you know really looked up to him. So definitely rest in peace. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think we're like done. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. The cicadas came and went. I didn't really <laughs> get attacked by any praise. Praise everybody who needs to be praised. But <laughs> cicadas came and went. Apparently, we have a uh, acid spitting land lobsters. Evidently, in Texas, I don't know what the hell. Like the, the world's the world's doing something. I don't know what's doing. Oh gosh. <laughs> the, the world's going to pot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, in the midst of the, the world going to pot, uh, we love you guys. Thank you for supporting us. Um, we're definitely going to be back more consistently. Um, and I'm wishing a Black August resistance to everyone. Black August um, resistance. Yeah. And it's still, whether affiliated with the organization or not, because I, I don't want to be, but it's always Black Lives Matter still. For me. <laughs> um, the concept itself, the hashtag, you know, the, 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 I don't even want to use the words. Um, 
is for me is Africans have the right to resist. Oh, um, yes. So yes, absolutely. That's what Africans it is for me. Right um, well, I already know my life matters, but I also have the right to uh, create a revolution where there needs to be one. And, and, see, uh, <laughs> and see, to that point, though, the reason why I don't say that is because of who music. <laughs> that's the reason why I don't say that is because that's like one of one of two of their like calling cards. So that's exactly why I don't say that. But it is absolutely the fact. Africans um, have what the right I, what to I will it. say. What I will say, yes, Africans have the right to resist, but also um, join an organization that fits you. You know, like they're not all going to fit you and your criteria. You're going to have problems with people, um, but also find a group of people who are like minded and you can create organization with, um, you know, a strategy over just uh, sporadicness, you know, so find some people you can build with and strategize with. Um, to help change the material conditions of the people. And stay black. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys uh, next time. We'll be back. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us and being with us. Uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. And as always, follow us on all social media if you don't already. Um, even if you're listening to us on one uh, DSP, we are on pretty much all the rest of them. So, you know, so stay locked each, in. Yeah, each one, one stay locked in. We're on Apple, we're on Google, we're on, we're all. So um, if your friends don't have Samsung or they don't like Spotify, that's okay. Because we're on the other platforms as well. Follow us at, at the, Black the Black Ocracy everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> see, you later. see you later, guys. Peace. Peace.